Those doctors in that hospital would not even go in those COVID rooms. There was maybe two that would. They would stand outside, make us dress up head to toe, and go in with an iPad. So the only form of communication those doctors would have at Houston Methodist with the COVID patients was through an iPad. So literally, we'd go in there, they'd be talking to them, never assess the lungs, never look at them, nothing, go to discharge them. I would come back out and be like, no, have you listened to them? They can't breathe. Like, the wheezing's horrible. They had no clue. They weren't even looking at that. And to address one, sorry, I'm like, <laughs> I got a little emotional back here. I've been there. I've done the whole shebang, right? Even I was the first one at Methodist that they asked to do window visits because when these COVID patients were dying, and they never did this with anybody else dying, family was not allowed to come in to say goodbye. They couldn't hold their hand. They were left alone in these rooms. I was asked, because I was one of the most compassionate nurses they had there, will you do these window visits? They would escort family into the cafeteria windows. I would go there sweating my butt off for almost an hour and a half, two hours, just to put the phone by that loved one's ear so they could say goodbye. I would stay in there as long as I could. And other nurses, they wouldn't want to do it. They'd be like, no, it gets too hot, or I don't have time for that. And the things you would hear were just insane to me. And I'm like, I don't care about, you know, what's going on with me. This is way more important. And I would stay in there with them, listening you know, to these families say goodbye. They'd even be on the window with another cell phone and go like this so they could say goodbye. And, oh, yeah, I'll love to talk to you later. I have so much information for you. But I have, right before I got fired, and I tried the right way. I didn't go to the media at first. I actually had a meeting with my CEO and CNO at Methodist in Baytown, David Bernard and Becky Chalupa. They caught me going around with my little petition to say, you know, if people agreed with our stance, not to force us against our will. Somebody told them I was doing that. They called me into this meeting where they sat me down. They threatened me. They told me I had to stop. They could fire me over this because I was soliciting. And I told them, I said, well, what if I went to the public? What if I went to other hospitals? What do you think they would say? He looked me in the face and I said, and he said, I strongly advise you against that. And he even told me 100% compliance was more important than my individual autonomy as a nurse. And that is a huge, huge slap in the face. And then after I got so public, basically other doctors, whistleblowers were coming to me to share information. So I've seen text messages, I've seen emails where Methodist Hospital threaten their doctors. You cannot sign medical exemptions. You cannot talk about, you cannot report adverse reactions to these vaccines. And then if you do, and if somebody was actually brave enough to do that on writing, there were other people higher up to erase those. Those were not to be allowed on record. I have the proof and I have the people that have shown me these things. By the way, I, I, can, I can confirm everything you're telling me. I've heard yes. countless times from other nurses. And I just want anybody listening, our healthcare system is, is, suffers because you're not in it anymore. And hundreds of people like you are no longer in it because they were fired by these vaccine mandates. I also, I also, I also want a, you know, a little thought experiment here. Uh -huh. Can you imagine, I mean, what, what you just described, I mean, let's face it, it the, the inhumanity, the cruelty, just the heartbreaking 
examples of what happened during COVID. Can you imagine if we, one, would have risk-stratified risk our outlook on this, if we would have embraced early treatment so that we realized very early on you don't have to die from COVID. This, this, this could be no worse. This could be no worse than flu or, or colds. Can you imagine what our society would look like had we treated that way? There would be so many more people alive right now and not dead. And, and we maybe wouldn't have a million adverse events, we wouldn't be here. maybe 22,000 deaths. We really can't tell. In our closing minutes here, okay, I, I've, I've got I've to have Bree Dressen uh, talk about why the vaccine injured are in the exact same position as you treating doctors are. Or the, the problem that we've had with early treatment where the, the CDC, the NIH, the, oh, yeah, sorry. the COVID gods won't acknowledge these repurposed, cheap, generic drugs and how harmful that's been to our response. But in the same vein, Bree, talk about why it's so important that people acknowledge the, just the possibility that your injury might have been caused by a vaccine. Talk, talk about why that's so important. Well, the reason it's so important is because if we can't see the problem, we're not going to be able to address it. And it's so strange hearing all of your complaints because what we have seen firsthand, it it just is woven into every one of your experiences. It is incredible what we've, you know, it, it, we're running parallel, but it's actually, it's like you said, it's the same problem when it comes down to it. So you have these agencies that have politicized the medical system. It's violated the patient to physician trust. Um, and it's left us out on a lurch because we have nothing. And so for an example of that, as I've been fighting with Janet Woodcock at the FDA for the betterment of seven, eight months now, I've told her about the issues with the clinical trials. I've told her about uh, the fact that I myself, I am a preschool teacher, just to let you know, I'm not qualified as a medical professional whatsoever. But I have Ivy League physicians referring sick vaccine injured patients to me for medical care. So if that, that in itself doesn't tell Janet Woodcock that the system is broken, I don't know what will. But the other, sorry. Well, I was going to talk about how doctors won't treat you until the NIH, CDC, and FDA acknowledge the fact that these things, I mean, th th they just all think you're. We don't exist. I mean, well, but that's you're also it, crazy, right? You're, yeah, I mean, you know, over 80% of us are misdiagnosed with anxiety initially, and then months down the road, we get appropriate diagnoses. And that's when we are able to find doctors that are actually willing to go against the directive. Because like these physicians were discussing, their licenses have been threatened. And because their licenses have been threatened, we cannot get medical care. They are afraid to treat us. We have had patients who are severely injured and are dying who cannot get in the door to get seen by physicians because physicians are afraid of the word COVID vaccine. So instead, what they're doing is they've made us like Kyle Warner and myself and our membership of over 12,000 COVID vaccine injured. We are ground zero to take care of the COVID vaccine injured when we have highly qualified practitioners across the globe that have been silenced and threatened 
if they even so much as see us for what's going on. We also have to point out that your support groups on your Facebook groups, the, literally a week from our first event where you were within in 24 stories, hours. They, they sh so these are the groups that allow you to stay in contact with people that are suicidal. And how you, I know you know tragically a number of people yeah, who have committed suicide. What did Facebook do to your groups? Oh, they pulled us apart. So right now our Facebook groups were, were flexing, and Facebook and a couple of other social media groups, were flexing between 22,000 members and 32,000 members any given day. But they find us and they pick us apart, and then we have to reboot and hope that everybody can find us again. And so if these people do not have appropriate medical resources because those doors have been closed by the NIH and the FDA and the CDC, and the FDA and the CDC and the NIH know that this is happening to us, and they're still not doing anything to help remedy this situation, which it would be very simple for them to say, hey, I'm going to issue a communication through the American Medical Association to tell the physicians, your license will not be pulled for review if you address or acknowledge a COVID vaccine injury. So one thing we have to do, and again, I, I, I barely scratch the surface of my list. I mean, I, um, first of all, we have to do something else like this again. Yeah. Um, what we have to do is we have to speculate. Uh, and you decide amongst yourselves, doctors, in terms of who's best to theorize what's happening. What is causing these vaccine injuries? Uh, you know, uh, Dr. McCulloch, I mean, you certainly understand about myocarditis. The vaccines, all the vaccines in use in the United States and predominantly across the world use genetic technologies that harness the body's own cells to produce the protein on the surface of the virus, the spike protein, which is acknowledged to be dangerous. This is the first time in human medicine that we have an uncontrolled exposure for an uncontrolled duration and quantity in the human body in a mosaic of cells. And to make matters worse, the vehicle that carries these genetic um, products into the human body goes into vital organs. And it's unprecedented that we've ever exposed a single human, let alone hundreds of millions of people, to this form of technology. And I published an op-ed before these were ever released saying it was a gamble. I knew it was a gamble. I knew based as a clinician and one expert in clinical trials and safety that this had a dangerous mechanism of action. It's biologically dangerous. And we have seen a large signal on safety unprecedented numbers of deaths and non-fatal injuries after exposure. We see uh, um, unprecedented non-fatal injuries in the same data system. And then when we look outside and we look in the yellow card system, in the UK we say the same thing, and we look in the UDRA system, in the EU we do the same thing. We have just fulfilled the Bradford Hill tenets of causality, meaning, I am telling you as an epidemiologist, the vaccines are causing these fatal and non-fatal events to a large degree, and many of those skilled around the table, I'm sure, would agree. Okay, so that transitions perfectly. Kyle, I'm going to have to actually ask you to give up your seat for Mr. Tom yeah, Renz. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got contacted by attorney Tom Renz over the weekend, who represents some whistleblowers within the Department of Defense. 
Uh, and Tom, you cannot, you don't have much time at all, okay? Uh, he showed me his data, or he showed me the data that is being extracted from, what is the name of this database? DMED. Pardon? DMED. It's the Defense Medical Database. And I'm going to just kind of cut to the punchline because we just don't have very much time at all. But this data, so these are whistleblowers that have been extracting data out of the Defense Department database. They have noticed an, a very alarming increase in instances of certain conditions compared to a five-year average, you know, in, in the, like a ten times number in some cases. Uh, they also have evidence that with myocarditis, the data has been doctored already because they, they did a, a search inquiry in August that showed a certain level of myocarditis. I think it was like 20 times higher, 28 times higher, something like that. Uh, but now in January, it's only a couple hundred times, or I mean it's uh, two times higher. So it, there appears to be doctoring of the data. Now, my staff has already sent, this morning we sent a record preservation letter to the Department of Defense to try and protect this data. But Tom, why don't you just quickly, because we have other things I do want to get to here, please tell me, uh, apparently one of the whistleblowers is brave enough to come forward and give a name or I would not have allowed you to come. To yes, talk Senator, so we've got three whistleblowers who have given me permission at this point to share their name. Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Teresa Long, DOMPH, Dr. Samuel Sigloff, and Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Peter Chambers, DO and Flight Surgeon. All three have, have given me this data. I have declarations from all three. This data is under penalty, uh, this is under penalty of perjury. We intend to submit this to the courts. Uh, we have substantial data showing that uh, we saw, for example, uh, miscarriages increased by 300% over the five-year average, almost. Uh, we saw almost 300% increase in cancer over the five-year average. Cancer is not being talked about except for by Dr. Ryan Cole. Thank you, doctor. Uh, we saw, this one's amazing, neurological. So f neurological issues which would affect our pilots, over a thousand percent increase. A so thousand. Ten, ten times. That's ten times the rate, and obviously that resonates. 83,000 per year, to, I'm sorry, 82,000 per year to 863,000 in one year. Our soldiers are being experimented on, injured, and sometimes possibly killed. Dr. Corey, thank you so much for your stance on the corruption. That's precisely what it is. They know this. And, Senator, uh, when these doctors are attacked, not necessarily the people in this room, I'm give, not giving names, they call me. I'm the one dealing with the medical boards. I'm the one watching the witch hunts. I'm the one fighting them off and I'm the one telling them where to go. I'm going to keep doing that. Senator, we also have, uh, let me give you this last thing and then I'll shut up and uh, get out of your way. 928, 2021. Project SALUS weekly report. Project SALUS is a Defense Department initiative where they report and contract, uh, they take all this data that doesn't exist supposedly and they give it to the CDC. They're watching these vaccines. On that date and around that date, I have numerous instances where Fauci and that entire crew were saying it's a crisis of the unvaxxed, it's 99% unvaxxed in the hospital. In Project SALUS, in the weekly report, the DOD document, says specifically, 
71% of new cases are in the fully vaxxed and 60% of hospitalizations are in the fully vaxxed. This is corruption at the highest level. We need investigations. The Secretary of Defense needs investigated. The CDC needs to be investigated. And thank you so much, Senator, for having the courage to stand against these special interests. So, so again, the, the, Department, the Department of Defense Thank you. The Department of Defense, the Biden administration is on notice. They must preserve these records, and this must be investigated. Okay? Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much, Senator. Yeah. Thank you. So, the increase in cancer is something I've been hearing about for months. And quite honestly, I've told people that are reporting this to me, I don't think the public's quite ready for that yet, okay? But you've just raised this issue. Apparently, uh, Dr. Cole, you're aware of this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this, this, is, this is frightening. Thank you, Senator. And this is a challenge in terms of aggregating data. I saw a signal early on of certain viral conditions. Dr. Parks pointed out mechanisms. I noticed certain viruses increasing. Well, these same T cells, immune cells, keep cancers in check. So. I do about 40,000 biopsies a year. I'm, I'm a busy pathologist, and I thought, gosh, I'm seeing more of this type of cancer and this type of cancer and this type of cancer. And so I've tried to talk to other laboratories and aggregate a bigger data set, which obviously these federal data sets are a very easy way to see that signal. Obviously, I've been canceled, I've been ridiculed, I've been uh, maligned, et cetera, for saying so, but I've been observing it. And I can't deny observation. That's how science happens initially through observation. Then we confirm through hypothesis, experiment, and data. So yes, we're seeing it. And now when we travel with these groups and summits, I have oncologists, I have radiation oncologists. I am seeing an uptick in cancers. I'm seeing these odd stable cancers take off like wildfires after the vaccines. It is happening. We need federal funding. The NIH isn't looking at this. Getting a grant to look at anything related to the vaccines is next to impossible because they're perfect, safe, and effective. So it's happening. My data is anecdotal. My observational group is significant, but we need additional studies to happen. And thank you to Tom for digging so, into so what's can, actually we, happening. I think we have some additional nurses. And by the way, that's where I was getting the safety signal from. Nurses from across the country are contacting me about the, the vaccine mandates, that type of thing, talking, you know, telling me why they're not going to get the vaccine because they're seeing this. These patients that their cancers were in remission, then, you know, all of a sudden, boom, you know, they, they're blossoming again. Dr. Urso, quickly. Yeah, I've got a question I wanted uh, Dr. Cole to address. Um, Ryan, you know that um, the experimental data on the genome in the P53 in BRCA. Can you explain that to everyone? Yeah, real quick. So we have genes in our body. We have mechanisms in our body. We have bad cells in our body every day. Our body says, oh, I can kill that, knock it off, you know, shakes hands with every cell. You're gone, you're gone, you're a bad cell. There are genes, there are suppressor genes, P53. It's the guardian of our genome. There's another breast cancer gene, BRCA gene. We know that the spike protein binds to the receptors for these genes and can activate them. That is a mechanism of the spike protein. So putting this spike protein in the human body via a, a gene shot that is completely investigational, these are not approved, and to mandate something that's investigational that can bind to cancer-promoting 
sites. I, I'd like to just yeah, clarify and take that a step forward. P, what P53 does is it checks your DNA yes. before it replicates, and it makes sure that it's fixed. So P53 is the one tumor suppressor gene that is most um, tied to cancer because once there's a mutation in P53, the mutation rate just skyrockets, Correct. and you're going to develop enough mutations that that cancer is going to have a much more likelihood of becoming metastatic. Absolutely So correct. P53 is the essential tumor suppressor. Now, do we know for sure that um, the spike protein is binding it and inactivating it so that it cannot make sure that your DNA is replicated um, effectively and, and without any errors? No, but that's why we should have tested these for cancer-causing potential before we started giving them to our kids. There are some confirmatory and can, can I, studies. Yeah, I'll put it into the record uh, yes. paper by Jiang in May yes. uh, where it goes into this data. <clears throat> SARS-CoV-2 spike impairs DNA damage repair. Thank you. The, the, the key, one of the key points is, is we, do, we still don't officially know what the structure of these, of these so-called vaccines are. I mean, we, we, we do have some information now that's been published by a Nobel laureate uh, group uh, from uh, Stanford looking at the sequence from discards and, and comparing it with, uh, with, the, with the patterns. And, and, and there are what are called untranslated regions. Has anyone ever heard of this word, untranslated region? Anyone? Yes. A few people. Okay. Everyone has been told that the RNA in there is just RNA that's making this spike protein that's going to make your nice little cute little vaccine, just like those mumps and polio vaccines that we've all had as, as, a ch as children. No, wrong. There are untranslated regions. And I'm going to read you what they are. There's, 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 there are three human gene sequences in those untranslated regions. One of them, we think, I'm working with a group of molecular biologists and genomics, one of them, we think, is targeting the mitochondria. I'll tell you what that gene sequence is. It is a, where is it? The three prime untranslated region comprises two sequence elements derived from the amino terminal enhance of split ASMRNA and the mitochondrial encoded 12S ribosomal RNA to confirm RNA stability and high total protein expression. That's what, that's what, that's what a WHO document says. Now, if that's true, if that's true, that, that could mean, we don't know, we need to find out, that could mean that the expression of the spike protein is actually being expressed partly at least in ribosomal, in mitochondrial ribosomal. This is so wrong. Mitochondrial yeah, no. ribosomal. No, no, no. Yeah. That, means, that means it could be a kamikaze First expression. Of all, we, you know, Dr. Wiseman, listen. You're certainly letting us know you're qualified, but I don't know what you're talking about. But, but, well, what so I'm talking about, Senator, is what I'm talking about, Senator, is in every single drug in package insert, you see a chemical structure, don't do you not? There is a chemical structure. We need to know the exact chemical structure, the exact sequence <coughs> of the RNAs and the DNAs in these vaccines. Right. Okay, they are being withheld from us. FDA needs to show us what those structures are. They need to explain what the pseudouridine is doing. You need. They, they need to explain this paper from Sahih. Who is, the, who is the founder of BioNTech in, in 2019, excuse me, 2014, they talk about non-natural nucleosides. What are those non-natural nucleosides doing? He talks about the toxicity of them, the pseudouridine. None of that is being discussed. So, None of that. So, so I, I, I want to clarify a little that, bit I agree there. with you. Okay. We need a lot more information. I want to clarify because people have said this are mRNA vaccines mRNA only always goes to protein, and we can't do anything. First, we know that people have re reverse transcriptase. Yes, it can make DNA. Yes, it can go back into the DNA. But there's something else about RNA. RNA can make little hairpin loops. RNA can regulate your DNA. So when you put 
an mRNA vaccine or RNA into your body, it can get in and it can be alternately spliced, it can bind to your DNA, and it can regulate it. For positive or for negative, it can change your gene expression, and there's stuff in there that can do that either intentionally or unintentionally, and we don't know. It's completely unethical because we are just beginning to understand MR, the RNA silencing where these RNA molecules regulate our DNA. So that makes it completely we, we, unethical to use this technology. We, we have to get on to, uh, there are great unknowns with respect to the vaccines, uh, their mechanism of action, and uh, disease categories like cancer. Uh, but there is a disease category upon which the FDA, the CDC, and all stakeholders agree that the vaccines cause, and that's myocarditis or heart inflammation. And I will tell you, as a cardiologist, it is crystal clear that these vaccines cause myocarditis. Dr. Uh, Parks has already quoted the paper by Avolio that has shown, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the vaccines cause myocarditis. The FDA indicates for Pfizer and Moderna that they cause myocarditis. We now have over 200 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on myocarditis, sadly showing the rates of myocarditis are far in excess of what the CDC ever imagined. We've identified that boys are, uh, have a predilection for this far more than girls. The maximum age group, the peak age group is age 18 to, uh, 18 to 24, so it's actually the college age. The risk extends up to age 50. And I can tell you that in this age group, it is clear the risks of the vaccines are far greater than the risks of COVID-19, the respiratory illness. Two papers, one by Tracy Hogue at UC Davis, one by Ron Kostoff, that these papers have been presented at the FDA meetings. They have not been challenged as analyses. One, and, and there are now fatal cases of myocarditis uh, uh, published by Washington University in St. Louis, by Verma, and by Choi from South Korea. More fatal cases accrue. There is uh, the father of a boy here in this room who's died of myocarditis. One death is too many. One. One. We have 21,000 cases of myocarditis and climbing in the United States that the CDC has verified. One was too many. Under no circumstances, under any circumstances, should a young person ever receive one of these vaccines, let alone ever be pressured to receive a vaccine, let alone ever be mandated to take a vaccine. This is crystal clear. The FDA agrees. There can be no controversy over this. There can be no normalizing of this to say that it's mild or it's transitory. Well, talk, talk about that because that's is, what they say. It's mild. Talk, is myocarditis mild? My, I'm telling you as a specialist, myocarditis is not mild. There are papers by Shower and by now by Trong at University of uh, Utah at Salt Lake. When they do MRI on these individuals with suspected myocarditis, 100% are having heart damage. 100%. We have a paper by Tashopi and colleagues looking at the outcome of individuals prior to COVID in this age group with myocarditis. 13% will have permanent heart injury. 32% never actually get up to normal. They don't get back to normal. We are seeing unprecedented numbers of athletes dying on the field in Europe. Unprecedented. Of these cardiac arrests, half of them don't come back. 
we now have a report out of the heart group in the UK where actuarial mortality for those under age 15, mortality in the UK is higher than expected. Doctors, uh, Dr. Malone. Just real quick, going uh, back to yeah, Mr. Renz. I wonder if Dr. Malone could follow up just, on that. Just real quick, because we're talking okay. about myocarditis. What concerns me so much about the whistleblower report there is this is the only vaccine injury that the CDC, FDA are acknowledging. And you combine now the fact that there's at least suspicions that the Defense Department is doctoring with the data in their database affecting myocarditis. I mean, I'm sorry, that just, that gets my suspicion antenna. And the, and the recommendations and the mandates are ignoring the FDA warnings. I would, I would contend, Senator, that there's not just a suspicion. In August, when the report was run on acute myocarditis in the DOD website, there were 1,239 cases, and now when you run it, it's down to 307. In January of 2022, there were 176 cases, and magically, they are now down to 17. There is a word for that. It's not suspicious. We have in the military the single best data set we that exists because we have baselines in there. And acute disease across all categories in the preceding years, five years leading up to the vaccination year was 1.7 million. They introduced and mandated a COVID-19 vaccine for our US military when they had only lost 12 service members total to the disease. And in the 10 months of 2021 after that, it jumped from 1.7 million all diseases to darn near 22 million. That was a 20 million increase. We need to not be calling this suspicious. With all due respect, we need to be asking hard questions of the DOD. And I will close by saying they are charged, at least in part, with protecting the sanctity and welfare of the brave men and women who are defending this country. And right now, these numbers indicate something is drastically wrong. And I know of only one reason that databases roll math backward. So who are you? Identify yourself. So sorry. My name is Lee Dundas. I'm a human rights attorney that's working with Tom Rents on the whistleblower issue in the military. I would ask that Congress listen to these whistleblowers, put their testimony on record. These are brave men and women of very high rank in the US military, because not just do we, Congress, in this building need to hear about it, the world needs to hear about what is going on. Well, I will listen to them. We will take their transcribed interviews. We will gather their data. And again, I put the Defense Department on notice. They must preserve these records so we can investigate. And we thank, thank you. you. By, by, thank by the way, I've I just got to, I have to show you. Uh, um, this is this is what we get when I investigate. I mean, this isn't to do with this, but th this is after a couple of years trying to get information out of another agency, and we finally get the information, and it's all redacted. This is, this is how the the administrate the. You know, the federal government, the agencies comply with congressional oversight. We're glad to we're glad to share with you, Senator, because we have quite a bit of those that aren't blanked out. And we also want to tell you, listen, the side effects, the only one that they're recognizing, that's an outright lie. I've got the Pfizer documents. Pfizer said in their FOIA documents that they released, they said we're looking for these side effects. The FDA said we're looking for these documents. We've got their documents showing what they're looking for. They're not sharing it with the American people because they're covering this up. Corruption was the word of the day, and I think it needs to be reiterated. So somebody really quick in their testimony talked about 
what the drug crime people were supposed to turn over when they made application. Yeah, yeah Dr. Carrieri, that was our, I mean, talk, talk about that specifically. I mean, okay, so, so on the day in which the Pfizer vaccine was authorized under federal regulatory law, that data had to be made public to the American people. By data, I mean the, the clinical trials data that Pfizer submits to the FDA that the FDA then reviews and decides whether or not we're going to give. And why wasn't it? Uh, well, was there, was there a waiver granted by FDA? Or? No, no. What they said was, um, you know, we have a lot of FOIA requests, and they they didn't deny that that they had to release it eventually because that would have obviously contradicted federal law. So what they said instead was like, you know, even though we have a budget of six billion dollars, I think it is. Um, you know, we only have a, a handful of employees to handle these FOIA requests, and you know they have to make a lot of photocopies of okay. these documents. So, so again, they, they slow walk it. Seventy-five now, years. Now, a judge has ordered the release, not at five hundred pages. Eight a month, months. But Fifty-five. Yeah. So yeah. We'll, we'll get that sooner. I did. Again, we're running out of time. I did want to talk about some of the other revelations. Uh, you mentioned FOIA. The, the FOIA under for Japanese regulators showed that this vaccine's not staying in the muscle as we were kind of all Correct. led to believe it would happen. It it's actually animal by, studies from it's by distributing. Yeah. We know the nanolipid particle. Um, and it also goes through some of these very difficult permeable barriers, for example, the brain. Or yeah, okay, I'll, so, I'll, so, I'll, I want to ask Dr. Malone that question. Because, I, I, but I like worked to, with lipid nanoparticles for chemotherapy. They are like garlic. They go everywhere. They can, you know, they need, they can slip through a door crack. They go through very tight junctions. That's what they do. That's why when I first saw the technology, I knew it was going to end up in the brain because that's one of the things they were doing was trying to find lipid nanoparticles to carry chemotherapeutic agents. Talk about agents. the concern about it getting into the brain. <laughs> well, the con well, that was the actual original design for lipid nanoparticles to be used in chemotherapy because in order to, to direct chemotherapy to the brain, it's very difficult. So they were going to use uh, lipid nanoparticles to do it. The problem was the lipid nanoparticles went into ovaries, bone marrow, <clears throat> adrenal glands, and other tissues. So it's still being worked on. Studies are still being done. But I was going to ask <clears throat> Dr. Malone, because um, uh, Dr. Uh, McCullough had just talked about the fact that he has concerns. Do you have concerns for this vaccine in children, knowing that it's going in the brain, the bone marrow, the adrenals, and all these other organs? So the answer is yes. I've said that repeatedly. I've uh, put out a four-minute clip in which I talk about the damage at risk to children in brain, heart, coagulopathy, reproductive systems, and immune systems. Um, that resulted in, in direct attack from the Israeli Ministry of Health on my personal reputation. Um, multiple fact-checkers denying it, but the data are incontrovertible. But to your point, Richard, um, and Jill and I can attest. You know, I do have some credibility here because I did create this technology. <laughs> I do know in detail. But you don't work for the CDC, NIH, or <laughs> FDA. No. Um, no, I actually work for the DOD um, from time to time. Um, so I do know about the untranslated regions, why they're there. I do understand explicitly in detail about reverse transcriptase and what it can do, et cetera. But I can tell you that we moved off of trying to develop further these mRNA and DNA complexes um, based on our work in non-human primates and in mice. We spent years uh, with both commercial funding 
and various public funding, not NIH, trying to advance this technology. Many, many different catenic lipid formulations, compounds tested, screened for toxicity. We could never overcome the hyperinflammatory characteristics of these uh, polynucleotide lipid, catenic lipid complexes. We could never get there. Now, the Carrico and Weissman assertion, and it's, you know, it's, it's like baseball. Um, I, I brought Katie Carrico into this like a decade before, after I'd made the basic discoveries. They assert that the inclusion of the pseudouridine reduces the inflammatory response. But the, the data show that that is a marginal decrease. And the data also show from their competitor, it's important to remember that they are BioNTech, Katie's a vice president. Um, so their competitor in Germany has shown very good res immune response without the pseudouridine. So you're right, pseudouridine is a synthetic compound. The logic is that incorporation of pseudouridine reduces the inflammatory response, but the inflammatory response is still there. And to your point, Richard, we are clearly seeing not only um, specific effects associated with spike protein, but nonspecific effects associated with liponanocomplexes. How do we know that? Because Moderna um, gave us a presentation to their stockholders recently where they rolled out their phase one data on their influenza vaccine candidates that are using the same technology platform. So no spike protein associated influenza antigens. And in their hands at the 100 microgram dose, which is the dose that's used in the um, um, emergency use authorized vaccines, 90% of the subjects had adverse events compared to 30% in the placebo group. This is phase one data. Now that data has not been disclosed publicly. It was only disclosed to their stockholders. But what it clearly demonstrates is that the catenic lipid RNA complexes have intrinsic toxicity above and beyond just that associated with the spike. So when we get into these arguments about, is it spike, is it the lipids, blah, 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 it's both, okay? We, we have a tendency to get binary. It's either this or that. No, it can be both. Regarding the, um, uh, the data package from Japan that Byron Bridal first acquired, and then I think I was the first after that. People often get confused about this, but Senator, this is the thing that worries me among the most is that that limited data that was not produced to any quality standard that any clinical trial, you know, precursor, non-clinical data package I've ever seen would be allowed to be used. What, what the FDA and the regulatory authorities all over the world allowed was for Pfizer to collect data involving um, unrelated RNAs, other candidates, amalgamate it together, and submit it as a package. And in those data, which are not according to good laboratory practices, they did demonstrate that these lipid nanoparticles go all over the body, just as Richard is saying. And oddly, they seem to differentially go to ovaries and bone marrow, but ovaries relative to testes. And it's important everybody kind of latches onto this and they say, oh, there's spike protein in the ovaries. No, that's not what they measured. They didn't ever measure spike protein. What they measured was the lipid component, these synthetic lipids, which is the other thing you didn't mention in this cocktail, okay? These synthetic lipids go to ovaries. Now, who cares? Well, when your child is born, when your daughter is born, she has all the eggs she's ever gonna have in her ovaries. And a, 
we do know that, and the CDC now finally acknowledges, after women all over the world complaining about their altered, altered menses and getting, I mean, it was, a, it was, I felt like I was in the mid, mid 20th century. It was attributed to hysteria, much as your own story. These alterations in menstruation were, were, were believed to represent hysterical women. The CDC is now acknowledging it. The thing is that the ovary um, drives menstruation, as Ryan will, I'm sure, attest. Hormonally, the ovary drives menstruation. When we're seeing alterated, altered menstrual and menstrual cycles, we're seeing the the phenomena of postmenopausal women starting to bleed. That's a hallmark that something's going on in the ovaries, and we know that these lipids are going to the ovaries. We know that these are synthetic, abnormal fats that insert into membranes and change the charge of cell surfaces. That's all true. So all we have is this trail of breadcrumbs. And unfortunately, apparently, the FDA made a determination that they would treat these products using their standard checklist approach for a standard vaccine. And they did not use the checklist that they would use for gene therapy. And furthermore, they didn't make any special accommodation for the novel nature of this technology, which has not been previously characterized. And so what we end up with is the FDA making a decision to move forward with a data package that's grossly inadequate, that doesn't meet any standards at all, that are the norms in my industry that I've been trained on, and that is overlooking known problems, and then when patients are coming, women in particular, and complaining about these reproductive effects, they're, they're, being, um, they're being subjected to the same kind of character assassination and ridicule that we all get routinely from our friends uh, Mark Zuckerberg at all. Um, so, uh, so, Senator, I do, in terms of the pediatric, as, as somebody who is intimately familiar with this technology, I'm, I'm not too worried about the untranslated regions, but that's a formal possibility, and it absolutely should have been investigated. And the FDA has been grossly derelict in not following through on these things. But, but beyond that, we have a clear trail of breadcrumbs about reproductive toxicity that's not being followed up. And I am concerned about our children. I'm concerned about all of those effects. Brain, heart, blood coagulation, reproductive system, immunologic system, and furthermore, they're not at risk for this virus. Why are we doing this? And, and mandating these vaccines for children just breaks my heart. Okay. Well, we, 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 we really need to wrap up. Um, Senator, if I no, can get an opportunity. I'm, I'm going to get to you. Um, those of you who know me realize that my, my first child was born with transfusion of great arteries. And I, I love doctors. I love nurses so much because they saved your life. Uh, the skill of the surgeons was unbelievable. They revampled the upper chamber of her heart so her heart operates backwards today. So I enter this with just a deep respect for the phenomenon that is our healthcare system, for the doctors, all your training. Uh, one thing I definitely noticed, though, is, is as much as I value the skill, it was the caregiving and the nurses that 
you know, I saw minute by minute. So I kind of want to wrap this up. We have very limited, you know, very limited time, so please introduce yourself, tell your story, and then we will. this up. Sure. Thank you, Senator, for giving me an uninterrupted opportunity to represent the harm that is coming to the patients in the American hospitals and the lack of early intervention. My name is Nicole Sirotek. I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse for over a decade. My specialty is critical care, trauma, and flight. Um, since the start of the COVID pandemic, I've actually been rebranded, I guess you can say, as a leading expert in early intervention strategies executed on a large mass scale using the FLCCC protocol, as well as um, ventilator, uh, COVID patient ventilator protective strategies to optimize uh, COVID patients on the ventilators. My story actually begins back in May of 2020. I was one of the original nurses that went to NYC to help with the COVID pandemic, because as we remembered, they needed nurses. And most importantly, they needed ventilators. Well, I was the whole package, a flight nurse that can manage ventilators. And when I arrived there, um, the gross negligence and the medical you know, malfeasance that happened in there and the complete medical mismanagement of these patients is what had led a, has led us to the situation that we're in right now. The pandemic and the hysteria that was created from poor public health measures and poor execution of appropriate early intervention strategies and the handicapping of medical professionals doing their job has led to where we are right now and into the crisis situation that we are in. I will use several key case studies that will represent larger uh, descriptive statistical information for what I'm going to speak of. But when I was in New York, and what continues to happen today is that many of them are not dying from COVID. Now, many people don't know about me is that I'm actually a master's prepared biochemist and I have worked extensively with the HIV uh, virus tracking uh, genetic mutations. So I feel very comfortable going toe to toe with some of these doctors here, although I am not a doctor, I'm just a nurse. But what we saw in these front lines, we knew what was happening. And when we asked for the ibuprofen, they said, no, it was contraindicated. When we asked, like, why aren't we giving them steroids? Oh, well, it's not. We're just following orders. Following orders has led to the sheer number of deaths that has occurred in these hospitals. I didn't see a single patient die of COVID. I've seen a substantial number of patients die of negligence and medical malfeasance. Um, when I was on the front lines of New York, I'm unfortunately known uh, globally viral as the nurse that was in the break room sobbing, saying that they were murdering my patients. The pharmaceutical companies had gone into those hospitals and decided to um, practice, I guess you can say, on, on the minorities, on the disadvantaged, on the marginalized populations that we know that we had no advocates for because the very agencies that should have been protecting them were closed because we were sheltering in place. Now, while I was there and I saw that the pharmaceutical companies were rolling out remdesivir onto the patients, I tried to get a hold of the IRBs, I tried to get a hold of my appropriate chain of command, I tried CMS, I tried Department of Health, and they rolled out remdesivir onto a substantial number of patients for which we all saw it was killing the patients. And now it's the FDA-approved drug that is continuing to kill patients in the United States. As nurses, we've co collected a statistical or descriptive amount of information that you may not get from the doctors because for more they do quantitative data, we do qualitative data with a humanistic phenomenological approach 
in nursing research. And so we've collected the data from all of these patients across the country from which we have been helping patients because I formed the organization American Frontline Nurses and the Advocacy Network so nurses could advocate for these patients. And all of this data pool shows that as these patients get remdesivir, they have a less than 25% chance of survival if they get more than two doses. Now they're rolling it out on children as well and into the nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities as early intervention when as Dr. Pierre Corey and Dr. Merrick have already demonstrated that there are cost-effective medications out there and we are going to see the amplification of death across our country. And we haven't even touched on the vaccines for which all of our expert panels have already very well described that situation. So I won't touch on that since many of them are by far superior to me than, than even I could ever hope to be. But I can tell you that two days ago, I, f I flew out my first 10-year-old with a heart attack and I had to fight the doctor in the ER because he's like, 10-year-olds don't have heart attacks. And I argued back and forth for 30 minutes to force his hand to get an EKG to find out that he was had almost a complete STEMI, which is ST-elevated myocardial inf infarction, for which you could see it lit up on the 12-lead EKG. And he's like, well, that's not possible. And I'm like, well, he was just vaccinated yesterday. It is very much possible. Oh, at any given time, people are getting a hold of me and the nurse advocates at American Frontline Nurses to help advocate because, as you've seen, there is victim shaming that, it do oh, it's anxiety, oh, it's this. But in actuality, if they put down that it was a vaccine injury, the physician, the corporation, the hospital, the clinic, they actually won't get reimbursed, so it gets labeled as anxiety or neuropathy or Guillain-Barre syndrome, when in actuality, it's very realistically a vaccine injury. Now, I'm not, uh, even though I founded American Frontline Nurses, I've traveled extensively to South America, India, and South Africa, working in hot zones, stopping the spread of the virus, and working with early intervention. And nowhere in those countries, in developing nations, do I see these issues that we see here in the United States. It's actually, I'm a very proud American citizen. I come from a family of immigrants, and my mother told me that the United States is the, the best country in the world, though granted I am biased being an American. And our level of healthcare has been deteriorated to substandard third world nation healthcare, whereas I tell people you are better off in South America in a field hospital than you are in level one trauma designer hospitals in the United States. As nurses, we are getting reports across the country from our American frontline nurses about patients not getting food, patients not getting water. How come a patient hasn't been fed in nine days? Why do I need to get a court order to force a hospital to feed a person who isn't intubated and who's literally telling you they would like food? Oh, well, you can't take your BiPAP mask off. Well, that's what us nurses are for. We're gonna help you take that off and we're gonna help you eat, but we're not allowed to. If you know if they're on a ventilator, they're not getting basic standards of care. I've had patients that haven't been bathed, haven't been fed, haven't been given water, haven't been turned. And if you ask me, this isn't a hospital, this is a concentration camp. That's right. Absolutely it is. <laughs> Nowhere in the United States do we isolate people for hundreds of hours at a time with no human contact. It's not even allowed in the prisons. You are not allowed to isolate a prisoner for beyond a certain extensive amount of time because it is, again, it is horrible for their mental health and is considered inhumane. However, in these hospitals now, we're allowed to isolate patients from their families for days and you have to say, 
goodbye to them over an iPhone, as Jennifer Bridges has just demonstrated to us, or she has to shuttle people in to see. And personally, I was fired for sneaking a Hispanic family in to say the last rites to their family. And so thank you, Senator Johnson, for giving nurses the opportunity to come and represent our patients, because as you can see, we're not often thought of as uh, leading professionals, though we are the missing link between the doctors and the patients. So thank you so much for this time. Okay. Thank you for being a nurse. Um, so I'm hoping everybody that viewed this today recognizes the qualification, qualifications of the individuals that spoke here today. Now, again, there, there's disagreement between people in this room. Uh, the viewpoints expressed were those of those individuals expressing it. But these are real world experiences from people that are on the front lines that are treating patients. And it's different from probably anything you've heard, unless you've been following these people in the media, trying to break through, trying to convey the American public and provide the information that I think we all need, that we all deserve. Um, now, you know, my antenna is always up because I'm getting accused of spreading mis misinformation all the time. So I can imagine how the news media is going to treat so much of this. They're going, to, they're going to pick little phrases out, and they're going to pick it apart, and they're going to try and marginalize this entire event. All I can ask is the viewers to share this. Tell your friends, I know this is long. This is, this is a five-hour long panel, and we didn't even scratch the surface of what we need to discuss. This shouldn't have been necessary. As our information grew, as we became better and better educated, less ignorant about the coronavirus, COVID, the COVID vaccines, this, this, should, this should have been made public every step along the way. But it wasn't. So again, I'm just asking the viewing public to have an open mind, respect these individuals who have paid a significant price, professionally, reputationally. Uh, these are highly qualified individuals. They speak from experience. We've got to fix this problem. We can't let this continue. We can't let it happen in the future. So again, thank all of you for coming. Thank you for being doctors, for being nurses, for being academicians, for being medical researchers. And thank all of you for viewing this. Share this with your friends. God bless you all.